0: Hey there, Next real listeners, this is Andy. Before we dive into this episode, I wanted to let you know about an exciting change. As you may have noticed, we have been including episodes of one of our other shows, Movies We Like, in this feed. Well, we are thrilled to announce that Movies We Like has grown so much that it's now ready to strike out on its own. From now on, to catch the latest episodes of Movies We Like, you'll want to head over to its dedicated feed and hit that subscribe button. We've got plenty of other great content lined up, and we don't want you to miss a thing. Don't worry though, the next Real Film Podcast isn't going anywhere. We'll still be bringing you the same in depth discussions and analysis of your favorite films right here in this feed. So if you love what we do with movies we like, be sure to search for it in your favorite podcast app and subscribe today. Thanks for being a part of our podcast journey. And now let's get back to the show. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout-out. Buying shirts from the slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Hello, and welcome to The Next Real Speakeasy from Rashpixel.fm. I'm Andy Nelson, and that over there is Pete Wright. Speakeasy number two. The Next Real Speakeasy is a new show we'll be bringing to you each month in which we invite industry guests to join us, and instead of serving up their favorite cocktails, they serve up movies that they love so that we can all talk about them. We'd like to welcome our guest to this month's show, visual effects supervisor, designer, and director, Matthew Gratzner. Matt started in the art department back in 1995 with four rooms, then jumped over to miniatures and effects with Broken Arrow and The Arrival, creating his company, Hunter Gratzner Industries, Inc., which has since become the now Academy Award-winning effects company, New Deal Studios. Working in miniatures and visual effects on many big projects, including From the Earth to the Moon, Armageddon, The Aviator, Iron Man, Real Steel, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, and many, many more, Matt then decided to throw his hat into the directing ring. Helming the indie-western Hot Bath and a Stiff Drink, along with its sequel. Recently, he's jumped into the new world of virtual reality filmmaking, helping to pioneer the world of storytelling in this new and very exciting format.
2: Say hello to the folks, Matt. Thank you. Hello to the folks. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Pete. And thanks for inviting me to your show. This is exciting. I'm glad. I'm excited to be uh, involved in number two episode.
1: Auspicious Beginnings.
2: That's right. That's exciting. And I'll do such a crappy job. It'll be the last episode. (laughs) Don't you dare. Don't you dare say that. (laughs) I'm kidding. No, no, no. I'm very excited. This is cool.
0: All right. Well, now you brought a movie to the speakeasy that you love and uh, that you want to recommend to all of our listeners. And I also think it's safe to say that uh, Pete and I kind of love this one, too. So, uh, Matt, what is tonight's movie?
2: Casino Royale. I'm very excited to to talk about that film. Your file shows no kills, but to become a double O. It takes two. How did you die? Your contact?
0: Not well. You needn't worry. The second is... Yes. Considerably. And this, of course, is not the 1967-ish... Uh, spoof version.
2: of Oh no! That's, <laughs> Peter Royale. No, that's that's what I was going to talk about.
0: Wait, wait a hey, you know, Peter Sellers <laughs> what and Woody Allen. No,
2: no it's nice. <laughs> I screwed you guys. No, um, no, it is actually the, the 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 reboot of the James Bond franchise with Daniel Craig, and it was. Uh, and yes, that that is the one we'll be talking about. Not not the not the other. The other one's fun, but I'm not talking about that one.
1: Now you, uh, as as an as an effects guy. Um is it hard to to go to movies like that are that are effects and stunt filled?
2: That's actually a good question. Um yes and no. On a f- the James Bond franchise, they could be like naked on screen throwing toilet paper at each other and I'll watch it cuz I like James <laughs> Bond. So it really doesn't matter. I well, hear that's coming up down the line here. Maybe yeah, that yeah that I'll have to comment like a in the last one. But um no, uh it is on a film like the Bond franchise or films that are trying to do more You know, effects that are seamless. I don't really have a problem if I'm really caught up in the story. And frankly, if I'm starting to notice the effects, it is because maybe the story or the dialogue isn't good, or I'm not really engaged in the characters. Um, Sometimes it's hard and, and not because an effect may be poorly achieved. It's when an effect is really, really good. I may stop and go, hey, how did they do that? That looks mm-hmm. pretty good. And but, but I actually like watch – if the films are engaging, I'll put that to the side. And even if the effects are not good or maybe they're, they're showing their hand too much on how they did something because it may not be as seamless as it should be. I, I'll actually, if the story's good and I'm really into the film and I'm into the characters, that I, I just I just ignore it and I keep watching it. But some sometimes, but if a film's really good and it's seamless, like you just you just don't care, and that's what it should be for anybody.
1: Well, and that gets us into I, I think the first question, you know, and th- talking about sort of this process and what this this show is all about, thinking about why the movie that you brought to this platform is important to you, um, and and so I, I've just been thinking about it all day. Like, what is it about this film? That, that you really connect with to the point that you feel we need to, that it's a good one to talk about here.
2: Uh, well, it, honestly, I, as I said earlier, I'm a huge Bond uh, fanatic, and, and I've always loved those films. And and anything that even is is like those films, I always sort of harken back to Bond. And I've always been a, a fan of the different films. And when they had the Pierce Brosnan films, and they did GoldenEye, I was pretty excited. It's a reboot, new Bond But, you know, there's a point where the films always sort of take this odd path and they do every different Bond character or excuse me, Bond actor has gone through the same process where it gets it's a serious film with a little bit of maybe tongue in cheek. And then you're introducing the character. And then by the end of that actor's run, it almost becomes campy or or almost self self referential or parody. And it always frustrates me because it's like you can keep telling a, a solid story. You can have the tongue in cheek moments and but but don't make it so that it's almost a comic book. And I mean, as I said, I, I like most of the Pierce Brosnan films, but there's a point towards the end where it was getting, especially if they'd have like, you know, bizarre composites and it really took you out of the film. So all of a sudden, you know, he's in a parachute going down a wave. Or, and i was like, I'm not buying any of this. And it's, and, and but again, you know, I, I appreciate the performances and I think they're terrific actors. But what about the Casino Royale film? What was exciting about it is I felt it was a really successful reboot without it becoming a comic book, still maintaining, um, you know the, the the different tropes of the Bond franchise, but also sort of reintroducing this new Bond. They weren't when when Daniel Craig was first cast. Uh, even though I thought he was terrific in Road to Perdition and a number of other pictures he was in, I always felt when I first saw that he was cast, I was like, wow. You know, he he kind of is like 009 that would get killed in the prologue. You know, he, he didn't look like Bond. He doesn't <laughs> have you know. He's like, oh, that's the guy who gets shot, and then Bond rolls him over. And it's like okay, but you know, sort of sort of um, you know in in other films, but then. They rebranded the character as this kind of more brutal, thug-like character, and you see the arc of who he becomes from the beginning all the way to the end. I mean, like I won't jump to the end of the film, but it's a great origin story where you see how he becomes refined, how his without it being camp and, and without trying to, you know, constantly winking at the audience. And the both the I think that the writing is excellent. The acting is, is terrific. Uh, but the action really supports the story. And I have n- I never felt in the picture, the action was for action's sake. And I, and I think this goes without saying about any film, action and visual effects should never be the forefront of, you know, oh, look, here's this cool effect shot, or <clears throat> here's this really terrific stunt. It always should be, um, this is in support of the story. Now, it seems obvious, but I felt that every gag in Casino Royale, and I and I hand this and maybe I mean, I don't I don't know the director. I've worked very at a distance with Martin Campbell. We had helped him on a couple pictures, but very much at a distance. But you know, if you look at Mask of Zorro and even Goldeneye, you know, there's definitely he has a style in telling stories visually. And I think that his action beats and how he interweaves action and character is exceptional. And he really does have sort of a thumbprint if you watch his films. And I think Casino Royale is no exception because that opening scene is it, – it, it, the whole movie really to me encompasses like the reboot of the band, Braun franchise and, and how it works. And I thought it was an exceptional combination of photography, visual effects, production, but of course script and story, all of it combined. It, it's, I don't want to say it's like a perfect movie. I mean every movie has its you know flaws and moments, but there's never a point where you're watching it – and, or for me at least – where I'm like, I don't buy that. It's like, no, it's it's. I think it's really well done. That's why I just like the film. I think it's very well done.
1: Well, and then, I, you know, to your point, I <clears throat> I was nervous about Daniel Craig, too, but I'm nervous about every Bond transition. I'm just kind of panicky like that. And this movie, I think, took exactly a minute, 30 seconds to convince me that, that I had no reason to fear. Right, and and I think it's the same thing. You know, I I didn't really understand it at the time, or I didn't think about it in this light uh, until I saw uh, the Force Awakens. When you see what Abrams. Was trying to do with the Star Wars franchise. I think they were doing with the Bond franchise, which is a certain degree of reclamation of the property. Which you know, we're we're going to 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 take ownership in a new direction and try to do something different um, because it's gotten to this other place that we're sure. that we're collectively not all that happy with. Sure, uh, and and uh, you know, I it. The thing that worried me the most, I think, is that they brought back, um, you know, even Martin Campbell, uh, sure. you know, and, and I uh, I actually, I know Andy's going to raise a fit about this. I actually really liked GoldenEye. <laughs> I, you,
0: you, it's you, not that I don't like GoldenEye. No, you it's have just, your words. You say it's the next best. Extreme, but I actually really
1: quite like Goldeneye, and I I wasn't a huge fan of, of many of the Pierce Brosnan, certainly not as as much as some earlier ones. But um, but I was nervous that you know we have uh, Martin Campbell, we had Neil Purvis, Robert Wade. I mean, we have these guys coming back who right. you know, granted, they, but are those the right guys to really reboot? Uh, right. I think so much of this. Uh, rides—so much of the success of this movie rides on the shoulders of Daniel Craig and his oh, yeah. ability to create a thuggish bond that goes back to the roots, a, a, a bond that is, that is uh, emotional, a bond that is funny, a bond that is uh, if more physical than any of the bonds prior. Um, it it was—I uh, I think all of those things, you know, in that, that incredible fight, uh in the opening sequence oh, the I, pre-credits uh, yeah,
2: I I'd love to talk about that but keep going yes yes No no no
1: I mean that's really it that's a, that incredible fight it it introduces us to um to this character in a way that uh, that was about as efficient a storytelling uh tool as I can remember in an action film to get well, us to think, know this, character. absolutely.
0: And I think so much of that, and I mean, I think that all of those people. There's, there's a lot of credit to be given to the people that have been mentioned as far as creating this bond, but also I think, I mean, we have to give credit where credit is due to Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson and yes. the rest of the Bond team that somehow manages to keep this franchise running. And even when it starts kind of tipping in the wrong direction, they they manage to grab the reins and pull it into the right direction. And I'm always impressed with, with what they do here. And I think that there was a huge thing like managing to uh, I, I think that so- several things happened uh, with Die Another Day right before this one where it was really tipping into kind of uh, stuff that was a little too fantastical, a little too silly. And I think that they were really um, smart in saying, what can we do to kind of take our next step here? And they had always felt that if they could get the rights back to Casino Royale, that they could do something with it. But that the rights for that had been tied up for so long. And it wasn't until around 2000 when they finally got the rights back and were able to figure it out. And then weirdly, I, I learned this, which I didn't know, that they had, while they were trying to sort that out, they had had Purvis and Wade, the screenwriters, start developing a spin-off movie of Hinks of, of Halle Berry's character that was going to be a very serious uh tone. And it was gonna be really kind of the same tone that we ended up getting in Casino Royale. And it was it was the tone that they liked so much when they were developing that script. And um, that's what really drew people in. And finally, and, and the book, my understanding, I mean, Pete, you read some of the book. I've never read the actual book, Casino Royale, but I hear that it actually is really gritty and it has oh, yeah. this, the same tone to it. Oh, you've read it too?
2: No, no, but I, I was talking to a friend of who, too. who has, and I was we were actually talking about the film a few weeks ago, uh, ironically, before I said I was going to talk about it on the show. And he, we were talking, I said, and then you talk about like uh, the scene where, where you know, he's playing the, I don't know, the, the testicular pinata where the guy's tied oh. to the chair. That's in the book. Yeah. Like that was in the book. And and I thought, you're kidding me. Ian Fleming wrote that in the book. they are like, yeah, when he's in the chair and being tortured by Le Chiffre, that's in the book. And I thought, wow, yeah, it's pretty gritty. But it, that to me was encompassed how well, uh, uh, how, how good the storytelling and how well, how confident, I should say, they were in taking the risks because here's a scene that could either be laughed at if it was done wrong or was just really brutal without actually, because it's all implied. You know, it's not right. like you're having to show some close up of him getting beaten up or cut, or because not to to go off on tangents, but you know, like Inspector, if you've seen Spectre, there's a scene he's in this sort of torture chair, and there's a Dremel like drill thing drilling into his skull or his neck or whatever. And I'm like, hey, you know, I don't need that. You can imply it, but don't don't go to the point where you're watching like Saw. I don't need it. Yeah. Well, Whereas, and what's right? so beautiful about that yeah. is lashif actually
1: uh, explains. Uh, why that is so stupid in this movie uh, in his speech you know you it really is just the most simple things right Right. we just need simple things so great
2: but it is but the the brutality of the film i think that one of the advantages of this film or what i love so much is you know you'd referenced force awakens and i'm certainly not going to go down and talk about that film When i'm talking about that film however what i thought worked well with this film was They did reference their own mythology, but without it seeming like they were winking at the audience. When Bond becomes, like, because the movie, as I said, it's an entire arc to how James Bond becomes James Bond. And so, when he is just the um, uh, section chief, and he kills that guy in the beginning, and he has to have two kills, and he, okay, so you see this just absolutely brutal fight in a bathroom. He beats the heck out of this guy, and then the, and then he says, you know, uh, it's two kills. He says yes, and then you cut to him when he kills the guy, and when the guy picks up the gun, and you turn, he spins just like he does in every Bond film and shoot. And now all of a sudden you're looking down the rifle barrel of the gun and the blood comes down, but it's not like, Oh quick, let's do like a quick, let's do the old Bond circles across where he's a target. It's like they work that into the story. And so you knew what that was, but it wasn't such a wink to the audience where it felt like, you know, Oh yeah, you're just giving me what I want. I mean, it, it, that was, and they did that throughout the entire picture from the fact that he had an Aston Martin and all the other gags without it becoming, as I said, cliche or, or almost campy. And that's, and I thought that's one of the things about the film. They just took a lot of risks because they did do a lot of things from the fact of casting Daniel Craig, who's sort of against type, to all the things he's doing and the brutality.
1: It is. It's remarkably easy to read the book and see Daniel Craig now, I think, in terms of casting. Hmm. It was really beautiful. One of the things that I think was is interesting that's, that is in this movie, I think it it, it connects pretty well Um uh, with his portrayal of this in the book, I just want to read a quick passage uh, or a couple of quick passages. Against the background of the luminous and sparkling stage, he's in a casino now. Mm-hmm. Bond stood in the sunshine and, or walking out of a casino, I should say, stood in the sunshine and felt his mission to be incongruous and remote and his dark profession an affront to all his fellow actors. He shrugged away the momentary feeling of unease and walked round and back to the back of his hotel and down the ramp to the garage. He's on his way to get his car. What's so amazing about this to me, this is peppered throughout the book it it's the uh, it's that sense of um, of him learning how to be cold right and that's something that I think Daniel Craig does really well I mean oh yeah he, you know Absolutely. I think he really executes that well the only other thing that I thought was interesting is uh, is this passage Bonds car was his only personal hobby one of the last of the four and a half liter Bentleys with the supercharger by Amherst VA he had <laughs> bought it almost new in 1933 and had kept it in careful storage through the war uh, it, it goes into so much more of his personal detail his personal effects the things that you don't imagine James Bond even having sure. right sure. Uh, that we get to see much more of his kind of background and that gets into his relationship with women uh, right. and and of course we get into um, into his relationship with Vesper and and I think if there is if there is a shortcoming for me in this in in his relationship with her it's it's that it happens uh, practically in a microwave uh, right. there there is this it's just rollicking fantastic action film and then we have um we have the the relationship stuff and it's all it feels just kind of shoehorned in there uh insofar as i adore her i adore her character uh she's she is a strong uh female lead in the film oh, absolutely that doesn't have to be strong in the way no. that she happens to know you know kung fu she's she's she is dominant because she's brilliant yeah and no absolutely Right, she can hold her own, and I think that is the thing to celebrate with her relationship here. Uh, and and I sort of wish it were uh, it, it, it were a little bit better articulated throughout the film. You know, I I just feel like it's it's just hammered home in a very kind of uh, almost ham-fisted
0: segment. Well, that kind of that falls to the fact that it's you know it's a relatively short story. You know, it's it's one of yeah, these. Yeah, you know, that's it's true. a movie. It's a movie love story. I mean, yeah. they fall in love. In an instant, and you know, over the course of I don't know a couple of days or whatever, how quickly it is, you know, all of a sudden they're they're madly in love and running off together.
2: Except, I think I mean, first of all, I agree with you. I mean, the, the challenge is you've got this story that has certain beats and certain moments in the pacing you've got to hit, and it's hard. Otherwise, you can't make a three-hour film. But when they're on the train, and it's actually probably one of the best-written sequences in the film, and they're sizing each other up, when she walks away and he smiles that's where it starts yes i mean so 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 if you look at the subtleties i'm not not disagreeing that it is very quick and it is kind of like okay quick we got to get to the part where they fall in love and everything but if you look at the subtleties of it of the relationship and how he's playing and how the two of them are playing off each other it it is actually strung throughout the second they sort of meet and particularly when they size each other up because and again it's very hard to say but maybe the character of Bond at this point had never met a woman that piqued his interest intellectually in that point and, and who also happened to be attractive. So that kind of played into that. But, but no, I agree. It's it's hard. It's hard in a Bond film to, to work that out. And the challenge is you're trying to show the brutality of this guy and who he is. But then, of course, he falls for her and then kind of you know, loses perspective, and she dupes him in a way, and they st- she steals the money and, and all that.
1: Yeah, I mean, really, it ends up being twenty other film, Bond films where that have you know where his prior relationships had been nuanced and teased out, and here right. they're giving us all that backstory.
2: Oh, absolutely, and, and it was good, and, uh, and 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 even another another thing that was that I thought was really really well done, um, very trivial to throw away. But they're in the car, and he's talking about you know who, that they're married, and he says that her name, and he's just screwing with her name is Stephanie Broadchest. and he's like, give me that, and, and it was great because that was such a throwback to obviously Pussy Galore and, and all the Doctor Goodhead Octopus, from Moon yeah. Moonraker, of course, and all these films. So it was great because it was a throwaway, but again, it wasn't like oh let's give her the name and everybody will laugh. It's it's like he's making the joke. And so, I, again, all of that stuff I thought was, was well done. And she t- she played it off well and it wasn't like some – she wasn't some, you know, airhead. But, uh, but at any rate, but I, but I thought it was pretty great. Yeah, and,
0: and they I, – I do like that – I mean – as a couple, they do end up going through a lot of emotional turmoil together. Oh yeah, and I think that's another thing that really, for me, does actually make for a strong relationship. And maybe it's the you know the speed relationship, you know, two people falling in love because they went through an intense experience together, sort right. of thing. But but I end up buying it. I think maybe a little more than you, Pete. But I like the moment when she witnesses his uh, his uh, battling the the two guys in the stairwell. Right. Which I think is fantastic fantastic stunt scene. Fantastic Just brutal, brutal, brutal. And she's, you know, stuck in there as this whole thing happens and ends up helping him at the end. And it it puts her into a state of shock. And I love how she plays that. And I love that scene in the shower when he comes and and helps her. Oh, absolutely. It's so touching and it's beautiful.
2: And it wasn't, the thing that was so great, it wasn't like this cliche movie moment. It's like, oh, you know, well, she's an accountant, but she could understand when two guys get brutally murdered and she'll just be what? No, she was, she was shocked. She couldn't deal with it. It was really hard. It was an emotional impact. And, and then he realized, well, he, and he re, even though he's numb to those situations, because usually he's 50% of what's going on in a fight, um, he realized the best thing he could do is try to comfort her. And I thought, I thought that was actually very believable and realistic because in, in, well really 99% of all action films somebody would witness something like that and then the next scene they're drinking coffee and like well oh, that was great what else to do you know not even right. reacting where she exactly. really didn't react so they didn't make her they made a, may, might have made her larger than life in her intellect and her her snappy comments but they didn't make her a superhero which i thought was pretty great
0: there's any female character i I think had I had a small issue with it was uh, it was Le Chiffre's, uh girl who you know nearly gets her arm cut off and and the the bad guys are like oh you don't even say a thing and I almost cut her arm off and then then she goes right back to helping him. The next you know, like, sequence right, she the is next, as happy she's working, as could the possibly be. <laughs> but the,
2: but the thing there is that it just goes to show that he basically owned her. I mean he was well, you, you know she's not I, and not, I'm not justifying that but I but yeah I mean it was uh, kind of yeah of, a, yeah. Kind it was of a such a minor complaint for me it's. That's,
1: that's you know, and I, I don't I want to make this a book it. review. I really don't. But there is one other passage I wanted because that scene on the train where they meet is in the book. Uh, it, it, it's a variation uh, on the scene, but it turns out she was introduced to him by Mathis in the book. Mm. Mathis brings oh, Vesper see. to him. Right? She's not a, a treasury person, but uh, she uh, gets up and and uh, has a. You know, they have their parting ways, and this is what's going on in his head. Bond thinks. And then there was this pest of a girl, he sighed. Women were for recreation. On a job, they got in the way and fogged things up with sex and hurt feelings and all the emotional baggage they carried around. One had to look out for them and take care of them. Bitch, said Bond, and then remembering the Munces, he said bitch again more loudly and walked out of the room. Wow. Now 200. that's the setup of his relationship with women. And right, and right. In, in that respect, as I'm reading that and then watching this movie, I'm thinking, wow, they they have done such a beautifully wonderful thing in this movie, in the way they have have modernized Bond's relationship with women. Right. Even better no, than so many of the other Bond movies have in their interpretation.
2: No, that's true. I mean that definitely absolutely. is is a great Bridge to to the, and that's what well that's what also makes him a a, a real guy and yeah. isn't just again a you know, robot killing machine um, although in the superhero sense and even though there are things that are almost um, <clears throat> uh, you know almost superhuman about it, the opening sequence you're talking about earlier the p- parkour sequence when when I saw that in the theater because this was sort of you know I'm, I'm going I have my you know apprehension okay is this movie gonna be good i hope it's great And they have the opening the prologue and the credit sequence is great the song is great when they had that opening sequence with the parkour if if, i've watched that scene probably a couple dozen times just that scene alone because shot for shot there's not a wasted angle or shot or insert in that scene from the start of them running to them going to the embassy and i mean it's unbelievable and it's probably some of the best it's probably one of the best i would have to say I mean, not that I would be arrested for being wrong, but I would have to say that it's probably one of the best action sequences in film. If you watch it shot for shot, because it's a great mix of visual effects, a lot, I mean, 99% of it's practical and in camera. Um, a lot of composites, obviously, because you don't have Daniel Craig on a 600 foot tall crane, but those sequence, that sequence to set the film up with that. It was kind of like they had me. The rest of the movie could have been crap, and I would have been like, "This is great. I don't care." This Because yeah. that that sequence was was better than uh, entire Bond films of the past. But
0: yeah, it was yeah. a very smart way to begin a new a new uh, Bond.
1: Oh, absolutely. The first 15 minutes of this film is just, I mean, it's non-stop. Um, and, you know, that's the thing I was, you know, as you're as you are watching that particular sequence, you know, I'm thinking to myself, and, and you already said it, 99% of the, of the sequence is, is practical, but, uh, you know, so any of the CG stuff that's done in there is largely related to, right,
2: removing wires. Yeah, it's that, removing wires, you know, painting out stuff. There's a, I, th- I think, and I could be wrong, because I, um, sadly, I, I know the miniature work in the show, but I don't know all of it. I think there's a sequence, I think when, like, the pipes drop or there's an an explosion when the gas tanks drop from that one worker i think that's a miniature if i'm not mistaken it's like a sixth or, or quarter scale model of the stuff blowing up but but yeah it's not they're not doing digital bonds they're not and i don't even think they did face replacement because that wasn't at its peak at that time although it's been around for a bit um i think it was just a lot of really good doubling and um and then i don't think i
0: heard about that until skyfall I think that's when I first heard that. Right. When he was on
2: the motorcycle. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, no. So in this, in this case, it really was just a, a lot of very, very intelligently chosen shots that are of Daniel Craig running on, you know, running up things, jumping through and just really spectacular editing. Stuart Baird, who cut the film, who's actually a director in his own right, um, is an exceptional editor. And we had the chance a few years back to work with him on some, some films. And again, he's just, it's just really good. I mean, you got everybody is is at the top of their game on this picture. It's not like there's one like, well, you know, this wasn't that great. It's like every single department is is really doing their best.
1: Absolutely. While we're while we're talking about the the stunt work, I mean, I was going to ask you what your uh, what the real highlight sequence of this film of of the film as a whole is for you, uh, but it sounds like you just described it.
2: Uh, it's Yeah, the opening sequence by far is, I mean, everything's the, 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 of course, the, well, you know, the, the scene, uh, with the fuel truck with the, when they're going to ambush the air, or, you know, t- blow up the airplane the plane, is terrific. Right. And I mean, all those scenes are, are really, really well done. The end, of course, is great. But the parkour sequence in the beginning is good. And I think what makes it so damn good is they very intelligently, for life, I can't remember the name, name of the actor, but the guy they, they put as the bomb maker, is a guy who does parkour. So it's not like, oh, we're going to cast, um, you know, uh, 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 Michael B. Jordan as the as the terrorist and then we'll double him with a guy. It's like, no, they just got the guy who could do this. You know, right. stunt actors are, are often are, are, are cast, but it was cast so well because you're never at a point where you don't believe it. So because this guy is doing all his own stunts. When Daniel Craig is doubled, you don't think about it because you already see the other guy. It's a great misdirection, so you're always showing the one guy doing all this stuff, and you're like, "Well, of course Daniel Craig's doing it because this guy's doing it." So right. you because it's a, it's a good sleight of hand. Um, and and what also works so well about that specific uh, opening is you not only have you know all the, the the violence of it all, which which again is there's nothing great about that, but it's tempered with these sort of bizarre human error moments. Like there's a scene where. The, the terrorist or the bomb maker, you know, does this kind of leap up through. It's the open like a it's a vent shaft that's open in a wall, and he kind of lifts himself and just seamlessly, you know, just without touching the wall, feet first, slails through it, and bond follows by busting through the drywall. He just <laughs> runs through the wall, and it's just a, and it got a laugh. i remember in the theater, everybody laughed, and I thought that was a really great moment. And then, of course. You know, go to all the way to the end. So you see all this mayhem and all this craziness. He goes in the embassy. He's shooting at people. That You know, he shoots the gas tanks, explodes, blah, blah, blah. He finally gets what he, he's looking for information. And there's a bomb in the backpack. Like, after all of this, the button on the sequence is he pulls out a bomb. And you're like... And then he gently puts it down. Like if that's like going to make <laughs> like a big now difference. it's going to be – it needs to be handled <clears throat> But I thought that that was a great gag because it wasn't done for slapstick or, or just cheesy comedy. It was done because – well, OK. He's, he's established he's a bomb maker. So maybe he would have had that. But then you go through – so of course you think back to the whole sequence, the fact that it didn't go off. But, but I thought those kinds of moments or those moments are very true to the sort of Bond um, – you know, uh, a mythology where again you're not doing it as a gag. You're not wicking to the audience. You're you're, you're with Bond going, yeah, that that would have been bad, and you know pulls it out. So uh,
1: I want to talk about uh, Dame Judy Dench. Sure, sure. This this is the film. Uh, I think the first film that I get a, a sense for her as a character, uh, yeah. uh, as, as really fulfilling her um, this sort of not the boss role but the mother role.
2: Right. The, well, of course.
1: And I think I think, mean, I think sh- that has been something that. Past Bond movies have aspired to the other the other six movies uh, had sort of aspired to I should say the I guess three or four before this one um, but uh, but I don't think they really fulfilled I think their chemistry on screen particularly the sequence where they they go to to see the the dead woman in the hammock right. Uh, right. where they have that conversation uh, and uh, you know the conversation about you know you, you be honest with me you knew I wasn't going to let this go she said well you you got to I think <laughs> you be you essentially. Right, uh, you know, um, is, is that relationship that I have always wanted between James Bond and M?
2: Oh, absolutely. And, well, what's what's terrific is that she's who promoted him, so mm-hmm. she has a sense of responsibility, and you know, the fact that he breaks into her house and she's she, the, the absolute regret of well, what what was I thinking? I shouldn't have promoted him. It was too soon. This was a mistake. But she does believe in him, and she does know. So there's a certain uh, maternal. Uh, a relationship in that respect because she does care and she, she doesn't, you know, she says, you you know, it's you're you're, you're, you've got to be more than a blunt instrument. Um, cause she believes that he will do the job he needs to do. And then the arc being at the end when she's like, well, now you can't be distracted. Now you've learned your lesson. Like, in other words, I've taken you through this process. So no, I I thought that the relationship there was exceptional and I thought it was great that it was sort of, I, I felt the most, the strongest, um, portrayal of m from judy judy, judy Lynch in all the in all the films
0: well what's also great about her in this film is that she's aside from teaching him that lesson about about not being emotional and getting attached to things there's a huge story element about the bigger picture here that she's also kind of teaching him and and it's it seems to be a, a almost an equal struggle that he's he doesn't see things for the big picture right he kills he kills the bomb maker Right. Um, And and he doesn't see that they wanted to catch him so that they could get information from him. Right. And it takes him a while, and it's not until the end when, you know, he finds out, you know, why didn't they kill him and all that, and and it's all because he is just, you know— there he's a pawn in this whole thing and le Chiffre is kind of a pawn as well but he's got information and that's why they would welcome him with open arms and that's why mr white comes in and kills him like there's so much more going on which i think is so fascinating for a bond film because usually you have this this big bad that he's fighting and in this one you don't you've got this this extra layer of bigger stuff that's happening. And I think right. that Judy Dench is a great person to kind of be the shepherd for that element as well, kind of saying, look, there's more going on here. And as a parent, I mean, I think that there is that great relationship here, not just about the emotional side of things, but also about, it's almost like the wisdom of being a spy that she's also helping him with.
2: Uh, absolutely. And I, and the whole concept that, You know, in most of the Bond films, Bond's the smartest guy in the room, and here... You are almost Bond. Is almost the uh, um, you're seeing the film through his eyes, as opposed to watching him make decisions and try to figure out what he's doing. You're figuring it out along with him. Yeah. So it's an interesting device for the narrative. Which I, I mean, I don't want to sit and think of every Bond film, but it, I don't think that's ever really been done before. Because Bond is usually the one who knows everything. He's and and he's still listen. The the Bond character in Casino Royale is still very smart. He's figuring out how to track things down, how to do things. You know, he's the best card player they have. Although when he loses. He grabs a knife. He's like, you know, screw it. I'm going to kill this guy. Yeah. And that's another I- sort and, of blunt force. Yeah, instrument. He's like, exactly. he's like, okay, I've exhausted everything I can do intellectually. I'm going to just like stick the thing in his neck and that'll be that. And then he bumps into Felix lighter and says, well, you know, I'll give you some money. And so I thought that was actually a great, and, and that was a complete surprise in the film. Like when I first saw it the first time, um, did not expect that like i thought okay well this is gonna you know because they've established when he kills the the sort of uh, i guess he's russian the terrorist um who i can't recall, uh, can't recall the can't character's name now but the one he kills in like the body worlds exhibit um in miami demetrius, demetrius yeah and he's uh, so maybe yeah so he, he stabs it you're thinking okay well obviously you've established that he he can do that if he has to so you expect that that was going to happen yet again or it's going to be a big knockdown shootout but uh but no it was, it was good
1: where does where does Mads Mikkelsen uh, stack up? I mean, you you introduced him, Andy. I think that's a I, I think he's a great character to talk about. He's certainly an interesting oh, yeah. character, but you're right, he's not a big bad. Uh, where does he stack up as a representation of evil in Bond's world? And I, I would add as a caveat, and I, I don't, we don't need to talk about you know what we liked or not liked about Spectre, but having seen Spectre, did that make change your opinion or, or of
2: uh, on this viewing of Casino Royale? uh well yeah i don't want to talk about Spectre because I, I i have certain pros and cons about that film uh but um in, in regards to uh, mads mickelson I, I think his character of where where he's not the mastermind behind everything i completely believe that he's just a really bad evil person and he doesn't have to be uh, even of course you know smacking a guy with a rope in the lower region doesn't doesn't hurt but um in regards to his how he stacks up, his, I, I actually think he's a terrific villain in the film because he's never a parody, um, and that's always a challenge with Bond villains. Because as soon as you're bald, have an eye patch or a scar running through your eye, and you're petting a cat, you, you kind of you're screwed. Well, oh, yeah, and, especially I mean, he, he even bleeds out of his eye. I but that, but, but that was such a but that was such a great you know that, that and the fact that he was asthmatic and he's got the the inhaler. But right. the, the bleeding out of the eye was so good because. It, for Mads Mikkelsen I think is actually quite a terrific actor oh, yeah. and, oh, yeah. and you buy he he's so understated in the film it, it's never like hand wringing like I'm going to open the floor and you're going to fall into the shark tank it's always like even when he had the people on the boat at the beginning of the film and he says uh, show my guests out in, in five minutes show my guests out or throw them overboard like I don't really care what you do just, just get these people out of here and it, it's not there's no the biggest thing about his character and how he plays him is there's never bravado It's just very straightforward because obviously he's supposed to be extremely good with numbers. He's like an accountant in some respect. So he's not somebody who's going to sit there and and tell his master plan. He's not going to do a whole, you know, monologue about how he's going to do this or that. And I I think that he works as a villain, even though he's not the mastermind behind all of it. Obviously, Mr. White is that connection. um, He still is just a really bad guy um, to the point where he's losing at cards. And he's like, I'm just going to poison this guy. That's what I'm going to do. I mean, he's he's, he's, he's bad, but he's not like diabolically bad. He's kind of like a thug. But you but know what's so really great resigned. about it
1: that we never would have seen I don't think we ever saw in a in a previous Bond film we never saw the guy set up as the big bad being right. threatened and here he was threatened right. twice in a significant way <laughs> right. and we got to see Mads Mikkelsen be like demonstrate what it means to be a guy who is in terror for his own life and right. also be the bad guy like oh, yeah. when he goes back to that card table he goes back right. to that card table with an air of desperation that right. we don't get from other Bond bad guys i don't exactly
2: think. well because yeah. you we, we set it up because he failed on the there's a whole yeah. terror attack on the airplane and uh and he failed on that and then was like he lost this guy's 100 million dollars so he's he screwed which by the way that that shot of the plane is like a is a hundred percent that when you're in the hangar I, mean, I just throw this in there um when you when you crane down into the hangar where you see this massive almost, i guess it's supposed to be the predecessor of what's now the uh a380 um that's a hundred percent in-camera model shot with just composites of of people walking around—it's—it's it's fantastic. Wow. It's like a big-scale model, model hanger, model lighting. There's nothing in it except they comped people walking around. I mean, it, I'm just a—I'm a fan of those sort of in-camera techniques that you—and you never call it out as an effect shot. It's like holy was a giant or I shouldn't say that language cut that out you'll say <laughs> oh, holy well yeah a family show um pg you say, we get one right okay well, that was it. um but uh, you see it and you're like wow that's like they must have mocked up some giant airplane cuz it doesn't look like an effect it's a complete tangent no, it's brilliant that yeah it's doesn't, brilliant. so doesn't, did
0: you know or did did you find out through your channel no that actually it an i effect?
2: knew only because the the visual effects supervisor for the show is a guy by the name of Steve Begg who's extremely talented and uh, Steve Begg worked with – he was a protege of Derek Mettings, And, of course, Derek Mettings worked on all the you know Thunderbirds. I mean, he was the, the sort of the other half of Jerry Anderson's legacy because he did all the miniature effects, Thunderbirds, Space 1999, UFO, all those things. And uh, so I knew because Steve Begg was the visual effects supervisor and also sort of the miniature supervisor, um, I knew that there were going to be model shots. And the only thing that called that out as a model shot to me was – the The composite of the people walking, there's like a weird perspective shift. It's really subtle, and it actually is pretty darn good. But when I was looking at it, I'm like, okay, this has got to be an in-camera model shot. Because first of all, I know they, they would never have built for two shots or three shots in the film a full-scale mock-up. I knew it wasn't digital because the lighting was too darn good. And to me, it felt like a model shot, not because it looked bad, but because it just was so real. And lo and behold, that's how they did the shot. And um, but it was the people it was the people walking where it was something that felt like a composite to me. And as I said, it wasn't poorly done. It just I mean, to answer your question earlier: Can you tell when you watch a show? Or do you, that's a moment where I'm like, okay, this is how they had had done it, uh, have achieved the shot? Because at the end, when the Venice House sinks, um, I had worked on a picture called The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and we were supposed to do and had built a humongous set for, for Venice Italy and we shot the heck out of it and there was a scene where all the buildings were supposed to sink very much like that and then the director changed his mind like at the last minute so we ended up doing some other stuff that was not probably as convincing but when that building started to sink I'm like okay this is not a real building for one because it's there's no way they would have rigged this full scale not because it doesn't look real but just because the practicality and the budget of what it would take mm-hmm. to do that yeah, right. um, and I knew it wasn't digital because at that time the digital work you just could you, I always could tell um, so so it and it was, a, it ended up being, of course, a third scale model between a couple miniature buildings, and then composited into a, a plate of Venice. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's a, that to me, honestly, the best visual effects are always sleight of hand, some miniature work, some digital work. Although the digital work now is getting really, really good, um, but I can always tell. I, I I can't think of a film where I saw something I was like, oh, I don't know how they did that. I can you you, you just know. And the, the biggest way. To call out a visual effect shot that's done digitally, is look at when they're getting better at this, but look at how it's photo- quote unquote virtually photographed. A lot of times people will shoot something or quote set up a digital camera in a manner or move the camera in a manner you could never do for real. And if you do that, you it's, that's the biggest giveaway. Um, one of the things you could tell. When when shots are done is where the camera starts swimming around or you're going through things. Audiences pick it up, not because they're like, oh, that doesn't look real because it's digital. It's because in their brain, they're like, I don't know how it, – it, it, it takes you out of the film because if you watch a film that isn't photographed like that and then you have a scene where all of a sudden you're doing something with a camera that's basically impossible – That's what really calls a lot of those shots out and the fact that in destruction – and they're doing a lot of digital destruction now. There used to be a point where we would do a ton of uh, obviously miniature effects and then even photographic elements and now they're doing a lot of it digitally and some of it's really good but some of it still doesn't have – the correct gravity or inertia that you would expect if it were real. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Well,
0: And it it really does all boil down to the storytelling, I think, because absolutely same thing with like stop motion animation. Stop motion has never looked real to me. But it's fun to watch. And in the right story, it just doesn't even matter. Doesn't matter. And, And I think that's how any effects really work. As long as I'm really invested in the story. And this goes back to exactly what you said at the beginning. It doesn't matter because you can just you can just move right along with it. And you're focused on the story. You're not focused on those elements.
2: Correct, and and you just have to, you know, the, the there's well, like this could be seven different uh, speakeasy shows, but the the challenges with visual effects and how to incorporate them into a film, and the challenges of how a film gets greenlit, and the challenges of how a film is racing to the deadline of a release date. I mean, there's so many things that go into how a film gets made, and frankly, how diabolically difficult it is to get a film made and make it good. You, you well, I mean, yeah. starting starting with a good script. Uh, at least gives you a good chance you'll have a good movie. Um, But there's so much that goes into it. And what tends to happen now, and this last thing I'll say about effects, because I don't, like I said, I don't want to monopolize conversation about visual effects. Um, But the biggest challenge that effects has is most people, pretty much everybody I talk to, I do a lot of lectures and I'll talk in schools and, and public forums and that sort of thing. And the audience knows That stuff is starting to look very cartoony. The the fully animated films. I, I don't mean a fully animated, you know, Pixar stuff is terrific, but the fully animated visual effects that are in live action pictures, people can pick out and they talk about, oh, well, stuff doesn't look like it did in Blade Runner or the first Jurassic Park or what have you, because it was a mix of all these techniques. But the studios won't do those techniques anymore because. Practical effects, mixed with digital, I think, is a terrific solution. But practical effects in general requires two things. A director with conviction that can design and understand what he's doing in the show or she's doing in the show. And the fact that a studio can't control it till the release date. See, digital effects you can constantly tweak. You can go, let's do this now. Let's re-render it. Let's put the camera somewhere else. In a practical effect, once you commit to it, you're kind of stuck with it, for good or for bad. And, And that's the thing is that studios now, because it's such a you know, corporately driven entity and enterprise, which I understand they have to make sure that that film is being controlled to the last minute. And what, what digital work does is it allows a studio if it, if need be to take the artistic, uh, basically power out of a director's hands and they can go and keep working on the film. So that's one of the reasons why you don't see as many practical effects because audiences do know the difference, but until audiences stop and mass going to the movies because the effects they don't like, you know, the, the studio is going to still deliver what they can deliver because the movies still make money.
1: Yeah, I had no idea uh, about that. That is a that's a major lesson learned for me. I had no idea that that was one of the uh, one of the contingent forces. Um, well,
2: it's because you can always. I mean, imagine yeah. like having to constantly put your hand on it. And then, as I said, yeah. some some directors also have. Chris Nolan is a prime example example of someone who has conviction who has a very strong vision and you know fortunately for for everybody who works with him has sort of the power to say this is how I'm going to do it and you know every film that we've worked with him on it is literally like uh, well this is how this scene's going to be done and I really want to apply these things and you know he consults and says what do you think and but it's not like we're in the middle of shooting something and says ah, I'm going to change my mind I mean You know, the shots for Interstellar, what we shot was what he wanted, and it wasn't like, well, I don't know. I mean, he he knew from the beginning to the point then where – the miniature was working so well, helping the story. He started saying, well, you know what? I have some other moments I'd love to just capture. Let's just shoot some. Because because he's he starting to cut, we were cutting in or he was cutting in the photography of what we were shooting motion control of the miniatures into his, you know, his edit in the process. Because unlike digital work where you're constantly having to render the work, once you photograph something. And then cut in the footage, regardless of the background being composited or not, you have now a sequence that can tell a story. Mm -hmm. So a guy like Chris Nolan, he has the conviction to know what he wants by the end. I think to that
0: end, I mean, I think that it does show that, you know, Martin Campbell – I think, did have some of that conviction here. Oh, absolutely. Willing, yeah, willing to really focus on doing as much practically as they possibly could and doing the stunts as, as realistically as they possibly could. And I and to that, kudos to him and the team because I, I really think that they made a film that it really does feel like all of this stuff is really happening. And because of that, it just really intensifies everything in it.
2: Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, he is a director. Like I said, you can see any one of his films and they all have a specific tone and style not just within the performance of the actors but even the pacing the editing and you know that that is a is a mark of a, of a good director is someone that you know maybe you don't like the subject matter necessarily or maybe you don't like some of the plot points but the style in which the film is told and the way the story is told within that visual narrative um his consistency and how he tells a story is is spot on every time it's very good
1: andy wanted to talk a lot about
2: green lantern though well we don't know (laughs) no no i mean you know like that's that you know it's funny that's a hard film to make and i'm I'm certainly looking funny enough we we worked on some of it doing just some set pieces and some other stuff nothing nothing too heavy in visual effects or any of that Mm -hmm. green lantern is a hard it's a hard uh, superhero to tell that story that's that's the challenge is you have a i mean i'm Certainly I don't want to talk about Green Lantern, but um, it's just the mythology of that character is kind of challenging. And like, how do you tell that story unless you're a fan of the comic book? How do you tell that to a new audience and then they're going to understand it? Because there's sort of fantastical things that happen in the comic book that work great in a comic book from, you know, 30, 40 years ago. But it's very, very difficult to be true to that vision and that mythology in a modern, in a modern story, so well, yeah, it, I'm a, to, know, it is
1: you know to that point, and and I'll I'll go ahead and, and try to bring this back to Bond even. Um, I I think one of the that at the time Green Lantern came out, it was only like four years ago, right? I mean, four or five years ago, right? Right. And, but even then, I don't think the industry knew sufficiently how to tell comic book stories. We had them, we didn't really know. Uh, kind of what was going to connect? What were the elements that were going to connect with mass audiences? And so I think they could. I think they could come back and tell Green, a Green Lantern story now, uh, after uh, you know Joss Whedon's Avengers. After I mean, I, th- I think we're we're getting after Guardians of the Galaxy that you can tell some pretty obscure comic book stories. Uh, I just think they 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 weren't quite ready. And I, I'll say that as an industry, when you look at what what Bond come what comes before Bond, you know, sort of the collected right, learnings right. of the Bond industry. I think there was a lot more to work with at the time.
2: That's true. I mean, it's, it's, it's also, you know, it's challenging because one of the things that Marvel has is they have a certain autonomy because they are, they did so well with Iron Man and Iron Man was, you know, obviously their first foray into this, um, that they had the ability to really have this autonomy of how they're going to make the films. And, you know, Green Lantern is Warner brothers, which is a big studio. And you have a lot of, and listen, I can't speak to why the film worked and didn't work or where it did. I mean, it's just, I've been on enough of enough films of that scale where, You know, it's just a different world. And that's the thing. You know, it isn't the the Hollywood of the 1930s or 40s where you had filmmakers that were also, or or studio heads that were filmmakers. You know, now studios are, they are publicly traded companies. And you have executives that have to make sure the shareholders are happy and they have a certain level of profitability. And it's a different machine. And that's why it's always hard when people start talking about how, oh, in the good old days, well, it really wasn't a good old days. The the old, well, because there's the old time filmmakers. I mean, even though the studio (laughs) system was flawed, It actually worked quite well in the sense that the Heads of the studios basically own the films. Well, they also own the actors, which was kind of disturbing because it was almost like slave labor to a degree, although frankly, a lot of them got paid well. But they really had the control. Directors in the golden age of Hollywood, once the film, a lot of directors didn't even go on to the editing process. Like they, the film went back to the studio and then they would do what was called retakes where they would reshoot um, scenes that if they didn't work. And a lot of times that wasn't even the same director. So, you know, because the studios were the one putting up the money and dealing with the distribution. And it's, so in some ways, it has hasn't changed. I think that what's changed is that the people who are running the studios now are not necessarily, and some are very good at this, but some are just not filmmakers and they're more business people. And, um, but you know, like it's, it's, I'll say this and we'll go back to Bond, but, um, filmmaking is a subjective art and it is one of the most ridiculously impossible things to put in a business format because you can have a movie that has a terrific script, great actors, great director. And it just isn't clicking with an audience because of the general social awareness of what an audience is thinking at that very moment. I've seen films that came out that I would have never thought would do well, and they did extraordinarily well. I saw films that were really great, and they didn't do well because it's just the timing was bad. It, you can never put your money on anything unless it, apparently it has Han Solo and Chewbacca in it, and then you're fine. But uh, <laughs> aside from that, it's nearly impossible to hedge your bet um, – on on a film because it's so subjective and and I think the reason that Star Wars uh, anyway it's getting some backlash because they're saying it's just really a remake of of New Hope but I, I think that they purposely made it very retro and very nostalgic because they knew they couldn't lose with that and as a corporation that Disney just bought Lucasfilm for a decent amount of money um, I think in general. I think they made a very very smart decision by doing what they did with it because I think if they explored anything that was too far out of the realm of the narrative that people know, I think it would have been too hard of a a leap. People wanted they wanted the original movies, but, but that's another story for another day.
0: Well, and, and you know, tying it back to Bond and going back to, you know, Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson, I think that uh I mean, I don't know if it's true, but you could say that they did kind of pull from the Bond playbook and say, look, sure. you get you get the right team of people to shepherd something and kind of keep it running. And, you know, you can change the guard here and there. But you really, if you have that core team, that's really <coughs> going to guide it. And- focused i think that's the strength and that i think is what marvel has done so well and i think now star wars is doing the same they're they're finding the right teams to guide these franchises to actually make them grow and continue and succeed without stumbling and and devolving
2: well what's interesting is they uh, i agree And what they did was, you know, Casino Royale was just a a colossal success, and people loved it. And then they made Quantum of Solace, which I won't talk about because we're not talking about that film. But that did not get the same favorable, critical, and particularly within the fans, you know, the reviews. People just – a lot of people I know don't like it. And because of that, they swung so far back to – you know, the that the sort of the main mythology of Bond in Skyfall that to the point where they're almost winking at the audience, like, hey, look, he's got a DB5 and, you know, as a car and he's going to do this and he's going to say this, and he's going to have this kind of gun and we're going to have Q and we're going to have all these things. And <clears throat> and I loved all of that. But that's where sort of, I, I almost to me was a a unwritten or, or unspoken, you know, yelling out, okay, we went really far off track with with Quantum of Solace. We're bringing it back. I mean, and because that to me, so putting the right team in, Casino Royale was the right team. And I think Quantum of Solace, there were a lot of terrific filmmakers and a lot of really good people, but it kind of got off track. And and just the style of, the whole style of the film, the editing, the action was very, very different from what you would expect. Um, In fact, even kind of delved into the world of the Bourne franchises, the Bourne Identity franchise, all very shaky camera and very, very staccato editing. And completely not what you saw in Casino Royale or the earlier Bond film. So it is about getting the right team who understands, you know, yes, you want the filmmakers to definitely put their signature and their thumbprint on the film. But also you've got to stay within what people expect, you know, stupid cliche. But if you're going to go to a Rolling Stones concert, they better play Satisfaction. There's going to have to be something that you're like, I like this. You can play the new stuff, but I'm going to see some of your old stuff, too. So you, you got to right. have that in there.
1: Yeah, we're gonna have to have a conversation about the martini, even if it's—I don't care if it's shaken or stirred. That, to me, is a wink at the audience, Uh, but—but in a way that I found satisfying. Right. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't exactly, and I thought that wasn't an eye-rolling one. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, well, you know, in the same respect, you look at David Arnold's score, which I I think you oh, know the, the music has been you know such a driving force behind the Bond franchise that that for him to be able to do uh, such a a beautiful score with only a nod to Marty Norman's theme right. until the closing credits, of course, that of course. was
2: unreal restraint musically I mean it was absolutely beautiful. it was unreal restraint and then to blow it to, to throw that out there in the end it was terrific because it's now like yeah and then of course he says the name's Bond James Bond mm-hmm. and and that was now it's the moment where Bond has become you know, close that you've closed this chapter on his life, and now he's become the guy that we're now going to see in the next X number of films. Be James Bond that we sort of know because this is ha- this movie is all really, frankly, an origin story. So, yeah. so take having- on the mantle. Exactly. So having the theme at the end was terrific because, and, and it was funny because it points in the movie. I'm like, wow, they're not playing the theme. Okay, maybe they're just you know doing a choice or whatever. And then when they start having, they start playing. I'm like, oh, this. Is, it was such a smart move without hitting the audience over the head. And as soon as that theme started coming up, I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. Well, yeah, you, you, you realize the, yeah. you're in tears. You didn't even
1: know it because you're yeah. suddenly a ten
2: year old in the theater again. Yeah, it was a great, great introduction to, to Bond, the low angle, and he's got like the assault rifle with the silencer, and he's in the suit with the vest. I mean, it's it's really old school, but yet, um, a, but yet, a really there's great... no
1: Walther PPK in this thing at all. I mean, yeah, that no. that big gun and the him that low angle. I mean, this is a new Bond, uh, right? And, and one I was really connected no, to. Was excellent. Absolutely. Yeah. Andy, so uh,
0: we've already alluded to the fact that it uh, it performed pretty darn well in the theaters. How did it do? This film did pretty well for itself. It ended up costing about 102 million <laughs> in 2006 dollars, which. Uh, is about 118 in today's dollars, and then it had a P&A budget of about 48 million. So they spent a little bit of money advertising it. All told, they ended up spending about uh, 150 million to make this thing and get it out into the world, which adjusted it's about 174 million. Ended up making 167 million domestically, 431.6 million internationally. Wow! When, yeah, so when you adjust that, it ended up uh, making almost 700 million dollars, and that that's, boils down well, that's to that's phenomenal. <laughs> that's oh, great, yeah, absolutely great. Yeah, it's a, a an adjusted profit to cost of almost four percent. So they made a nice chunk of money. It's about 3.6 million dollars adjusted profit per finished minute. So fantastic. You know, Good a job with this one. That is a beautiful way to, to start the uh, the Daniel Craig era. And I think it's, I mean, well, I can't remember. I haven't. I didn't look at the numbers. I should have. But I feel like, um, I don't know about Quantum of Solace, but I feel like Skyfall and now Spectre have both kind of shot up above this one. Isn't that right?
2: I, I, I think Skyfall did better than Spectre, and I know it did better than Casino Royale, um, was my understanding. I, I don't remember the numbers, but I seem to remember Spectre, or Excuse me, Skyfall being the largest... Uh, Grossing Bond film in the franchise, although if you adjust the numbers on Gold, uh, excuse me, Goldfinger, I think that may have beaten it if you adjust, take those numbers because they had a time. There was a point where Goldfinger was playing something like twenty four hours a day when oh, that geez. film. No, it was crazy because they didn't know it was going to be such a hit, and um, it did so darn well that uh, there were there was a point where some a couple theaters were playing it like twenty four hours a day or something back in the day in the sixties. So, wow. so it did really well. That, but yeah,
1: that's the big question for me. All of a sudden now that you are talking about numbers, I wonder. Uh, who is the adjusted is the most profitable bond
0: yeah i'd have to go through and look at them all be i'd good. have to say i think it was goldfinger to
2: be honest that or thunderball it was one of those two because goldfinger did such an insane amount of business because i remember watching i don't remember where i saw this in some show and they were talking about it um but i think i think goldfinger was the one and i and or maybe it was thunderball because it was the follow-up and people were excited because that's usually sometimes how it happens but how, how old a guy are you I'm 33. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm in my mid 40s. Okay.
1: So, so what was your? Do you remember your first Bond? Like, how, oh yeah. What,
2: what bond was your first Bond? Thunderball. Even though I didn't see it in the theater, but my parents were huge Bond fans, and okay. I saw it on television. And then they would like it was you know it was this Sunday night movie because you didn't I didn't have a VCR when I was a kid in the 70s. Um, but Thunderball, I had the, we had the board game, which is really crazy. I never played oh, cool. it. No, there was, a, there was an actual Thunderball. Never never played it. But like, look at the pictures. You know, I, I was kind of a intellectually challenged uh, youth. I never no, no cards, no math, none of that crap. But um,
1: the Thunderball board game, though Thunder That's on the board, mantle,
2: yeah, the Thunderball board game. That I mean, you look now at these ridiculous first-person shooters that people play. What do you got? I got the board game for Thunderball. You know, that's, that's, what do you do? Uh, you know, I get to be a, a Blofeld in a boat but but it's a little like an action figure on a board but um but no thunderball was the was the the, the first bond film i had seen and then of course you know obviously I, and then the first bond film i saw in the theater i would almost say I don't think it was Moonraker. It, it may have been Moonraker. My, you know, when I was growing up, I grew up in Miami, Florida, um, and, and we didn't. I was kind of out in the sticks at the time <coughs> in a small area called Kendall, which was kind of literally in the middle of the Everglades or bef- the edge of the Everglades. And we used to go to drive-in movies. My parents would always take me to drive-in movies. So. I didn't see a lot of movies as a a young kid in the theater. All the films I saw as a really young kid from the ages of like, you know, zero, well, really four was the first film I'd ever seen to um, like eight were in drive-ins. And the first film my parents ever took me to, and this really – totally crafts and frames, exactly my mentality, was Blazing Saddles. My parents thought this was a good film for a four-year-old, and, uh, and apparently it was, because I, I remember, actually remember going, and I remember specific scenes, seeing it sitting in a car and driving.
1: Oh, that's beautiful. So, so funny. Yeah.
2: That's beautiful.
1: <laughs> I think mine was, Andy, do you remember yours?
0: Mine was You Only Live Twice uh, on, v- on VHS over at a friend's house. Uh, or it was a Parents' Night, and they were all—all all the parents were watching, it, and the kids got to watch that one. So it was very exciting, and I loved it.
1: That one's awesome because Roll Dahl wrote the script. Really, <laughs> it right. is yes. awesome. Is that true? Yes, that is true. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's, that's mine amazing. was definitely VHS. It was a Spy Who Loved Me, um, which oh, yeah. you know I I didn't see in the theater. That's when I st- that's when I fell in love with the with the franchise and had to go back. Dad was also a big fan and. And so uh, I was probably I too first... young to see them all at the time, but uh, we did anyway.
0: What are you going to do? I think my first theater, I don't, I don't think I saw one in the theater until A View to a Kill. So it was, it was quite a while before I actually went to the theater to see one.
1: Oh, yeah. No, it was, for your eyes, Or Moonraker, I think, was, <coughs> was the was uh, the first, uh, first one I saw. No, I didn't. I wouldn't. I would have been too young for that. It would have
2: had to have been later than that
0: for your eyes probably only.
2: Your eye. I mean, maybe, yeah that or, or then for your eyes only i think was after the next one after octopussy if i'm not mistaken uh, it, uh the other way, way around for your eyes
1: far. only and then octopusy, then right. And right 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 yeah yeah anyhow okay so i think at this point it's time for us to rank it yes it is uh are you familiar uh matt with flick chart i'm not all right here are the rules Andy and I have talked about a lot of films on this on this particular show over the last four years. And every week we we uh, go to the website flickchart.com. And what Flickchart does is it it is a, a brutal the the brutal decider. I where see. it just gives you your current movie that you're talking about right is, now. Is it the brutal
2: decider, George W. Bush? No, you, so so.
1: <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is run by a George W. Bush AI construct that, that allows us to just put two movies side by side. The movie we're talking oh. about tonight and one of the movies that we've talked about in the past, it does not discriminate with genre or period or anything. Interesting. Interesting. And all you do is choose. And I think it will probably run through, I don't know, what does it usually do, Andy? About eight, eight or so? And it'll yeah, something like that. Right. It'll it'll land Casino Royale somewhere on our flick chart list of top films. Now, the, there are no rules. You'll hear a pairing. It may be, let's just say, Casino Royale versus The Sound of Music, and you have to decide which one's better for you right now. So those are the rules. If we hit a movie that you have not seen, I find that hard to imagine— uh, but if we hit a movie you have not seen, don't worry about it. Andy and I will do that ranking. Uh, if and and luckily there are three of us, so we actually have a tiebreaker.
2: So that, I'm supposed to. I, I will tell you which one I like better. That is Correct. that is the deal. Which we one will, would you pick?
1: We will we will come to uh, a decision about where it's Casino face Royale smash for movies. It is it's it's like Tinder <laughs> for for movies. <laughs> swipe
2: swipe, swipe That's right. Deluxe. That's
1: great.
0: That's right. All right, Andy. Shall we begin? Let's do it. So first up, Casino Royale
2: or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Oh, that's impossible. <laughs> that's like, that, yeah, that's like saying, do you like the taste of an apple or getting hit on the head with a bat? Or, or that's actually, that's actually completely the worst analogy. Um, no, because no, I love both films. Yes. I, I think Old Brother Arthur is an absolutely terrific film. I, I can't rank that. I can't say which one's better because they both are so different. You know, yeah, I think. they both satisfy totally different. Uh, in po- different yeah. Dates. And I'm a huge Coen Brothers fan and have had the, the good fortune to work on a couple of their pictures. So, um that's, I honestly, I couldn't tell you which one's better because it's like, well, it's a better action picture. Okay, well, maybe Casino Royale. Which one is better regarding maybe absurd develop, uh, character development in musical. Well, I have to say, oh, brother, I don't know. That's, that's a, I, I can't, I can't. Uh, you, I, you I, might it's well hard. It I in. hear
1: you. This is, I absolutely hear your pain. We, we sometimes <clears> call these the flick chart hate crimes uh, by pairing two movies that are both so good. Uh, and and sometimes it just comes down to this, which one is easier, uh, is easier to just put on and watch? And for me, at this point, I'm going to have to go with Casino Royale.
0: And hmm. I am too. You know, I, it, okay. Go, makes go it easier for, makes it easier for you because now it doesn't matter which one you pick. But uh, yeah, it's it's just one of those things where it's like, uh, what is the? Yeah, I mean, I I sometimes look at it. Which one would I put on first? Which one would I? Um, which one makes me laugh more? I mean, it's 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 always kind of. A little arbitrary, I think that's what makes it fun. It's like trying I'm to put gonna, these lists together.
2: But yeah. I'm going to have to go with. I think I have to go with Zardoz. I think we're going to t- <laughs> <You, you laughs> pick the most absurd. You can start if, cheating now. I'm gonna throw in movies that don't even make sense. <laughs> so, um, you know, I no. Honestly, that's it. I I'm at a draw because if it's a matter of what's the easiest to put in on, put on on watch. Uh, okay, I would say probably Casino Royale for no other reason that. Um, it's a pretty straight up story, and it's something. This to sound ridiculous, but it's something you kind of zone out watching because the the you, you know the action, you know the beats. But I really like Oh Brother, Where Art Thou. So now, right. did you no, did you plug this into the chart? We did, and, chart? and
1: now it it moves us to the next ranking
0: on our list. So now well, we just is, go to the next film. Well, what, did it, Casino, what did it say? Well, Casino Royale beat Oh Brother, Where Art Thou. So now it moves up on our list. I mean, got it. Yeah, and so it'll just keep moving up until we, uh, you know, until something beats it, and then it'll, you know, kind of fall down a little bit. Yeah, Fall down a little bit, right? All right. So, what's the next rank? The next one is Casino Royale or The Curious Case of Benjamin Button.
2: Casino Royale. Yeah, Casino Royale. (laughs) I can't. I, I I like certain parts of that film, but I, it's not something that I would watch a a couple times. Yeah, I really like it
0: when I watch it, and then, uh, then when I'm away from it, I'm like, (laughs) I find it hard to think about putting it on. Yeah, every time I finish, it, I'm wearing my diapers, and I just don't like it. It's too. It's just awful. Or maybe that's when I started. I don't know. All right, all right. Casino Royale or National Lampoon's Vacation?
1: Casino Royale in
2: a heartbeat. Yeah, I'd have to say Casino Royale only because it's 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 just a different film. I mean, I Vacation is fun. Um but um, but yeah, it's just it's just a different. vacation's like light fare, I guess you could say. It's fun, but I, I, I like Casino Royale.
0: Yeah, I'll do Casino Royale too, and I love Vacation. But uh, yeah, it's just a, there's something different about it. Um, well, this is a tough one for me: Casino Royale or Brazil? Uh, Brazil is my favorite film.
2: So, hmm. again, that that's that falls for me in the rank of Oh uh, Brother, Arthur. It's just too. It's just they're just too different to compare. Because right. they're, um, I, I would have to throw my the towel in on that because it's kind of a draw because they're just two different films. Uh, but if it had to go back, putting it in and just watching and kind of zoning out, I don't know, maybe Casino Royale. But you know, I haven't seen Brazil in a long time, so right now it would be no, let's see Brazil because so I don't know what did the what did the uh, diabolical machine say? Well, we have money oh, because we got okay. We have to vote.
1: Oh, that's right, that's right. Um, uh, Andy, are you are, are you serious? You're, you're doing Brazil?
2: I'm doing Brazil. <sighs>
1: You know, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to do Brazil too.
2: They made a sequel. I'm sorry, <laughs> <laughs> Brazil as well. I got you. I got you. yes, yes. Yeah, this right. this studio right. executive who's listening, going, wait a minute, let me write that down. Wait, Brazil? See a great we can idea. Do Brazil.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Let's get Terry Gilliam on the line. He'll jump at the chance. All right, Casino Royale or My Favorite Year? Oh, our last. Speakeasy. Oh, that was last month. Hmm. Was. Uh, I'm
1: gonna go Casino Royale. I don't. Um, I don't really have a hard time with this one. No. I yeah. and I adored uh, my favorite year. I think it's a terrific film.
2: I did too, I, but I'll, I'll go Casino Royale as well. Yeah, I got I gotta be uh, Casino Royale as well. Yeah, I'd say I'd have to say those yeah. three.
0: Okay, Casino Royale or Delicatessen?
2: Oh. Um, I'd say Casino Royale. I worked with Jean-Pierre Genet on Alien Resurrection, and I like his films, City of Lost Children are great, but um, Casino Royale, it's just, again, it's, look, they're entirely different pictures, and it's kind of hard to compare, but uh, that was, that's what I'd have to say.
0: Mm. I would say Casino Royale. I, I would, love Delicatessen, but I'm going to go with Bond.
1: I would too. I, I'm going to do Casino Royale, even though I'm I'm chuckling inside at the spring the the bed scene right now. <laughs> oh sure. Oh my goodness, that's a
2: good film. All right, Casino
0: Casino Royale or Snowpiercer?
2: You know, I I've only seen sadly the trailer to Snowpiercer, and oh. I know a lot of people. Yeah, I know. Well, oh. you said a film I didn't see, so <laughs> that, there I didn't a lie. The, my favorite part is when they're in the train and it's snowing. That's my favorite part. I didn't see the movie, so um, all right. So it's down good. to uh, Sandy. Uh,
0: uh I'm gonna. am I'm, I'm Casino. Yeah, I think I am too. As much as
2: I love Snowpiercer. Yeah. All right. So, uh, so does the Royale. machine keep, is the machine say, agreeing with all these choices or no? No, it just, well, it's no.
1: the, the machine is, is a diabolical, uh, oh, okay, uh, exactly. motionless, uh, you know, automaton. Yeah, it just uh, tells us, oh, it it's, tells it's, us, it gives us our insights yeah. uh, that we didn't even know we had. Got it. Well, that's good. It's like politicians. Right exactly. Now. It's,
0: yeah. It's like a, a ranking chart. So, we, you know, we it's pick a single one. elimination. It, uh, yeah. It, it jumps it up 50%. You know, it puts it up against one fifty percent from there, and it kind of keeps doing that up and down until it kind of finds a place where it thinks that it's going to land, and that's it. We're at number fifteen on our list, Ugh. right, right between yeah. Brazil and Snowpiercer. So I think that's a, I think that's a good spot for it. Well, I, I do too, and I'm going to tell you, I, I watching
1: this movie again, uh, it reminded me. Uh, of all the hue and cry about Daniel Craig and about Spectre and about what, how we feel about the latest Bond, uh, it, this this film reminded me <laughs> why Daniel Craig is my favorite Bond, and this I think is my favorite Bond film.
2: Wow! Um,
1: it, it really, I, I mean, it's it shines in terms of pacing and uh, oh, yeah. you know character, and I mean, it just hits every beat for me um, it, it, on and that doesn't even begin to talk about the incredible stunt work and and uh, right, right. Uh, it's just a it's it is the perfect bond for me and i it, that's that's it i'm i'm on the record
2: well that's i i <clears throat> i'd have to say it's neck and neck between this and only because this was what gave the bond every bit of its mythology and all the tropes uh, goldfinger is neck and neck for me the two best because Gold, if you haven't watched Goldfinger in a long time, and I almost picked that film for this, this show, but I went with Casino Royale just because of the fact that Spectre had just come out mm-hmm. and, and Bond is a little bit uh, fresher in everyone's mind, or at least Daniel Craig. Um, but Goldfinger is actually a really, really, really well-structured film. There are scenes, obviously, there's like rear projection and things that take you out of it because it may be some dated kind of effects or looks or what have you. But it, it sets up everything, even the stuff that's in um, Casino Royale is set up, in the style and how the character is a bit in goldfinger so to me i would say it's neck and neck those are my two favorites out of the franchise
1: all right i take that as a good recommendation i need to go back and watch goldfinger again it's been a long time
2: yeah
0: goldfinger has always been my favorite until this and now just like you it's always been neck and neck (coughs) between these two there's there are some dated elements in that that you know sometimes i'm like "Eh, i wish that that didn't happen in uh, in Goldfinger but for the most part it is such a solid film and i really enjoy that so these two have always been my two faves
2: well what's what's funny about goldfinger and, and this is where and like i said we're not going on the specter you know pros and cons but specter has a torture scene and in in um you know goldfinger it's the bit where he says you know you expect me to talk goldfinger he's like no i expect, I expect you, to die. Like, you to die yeah and 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 it's it's great because here you are setting up the guy who's going to monologue like he you know this is the whole thing and no, he doesn't even want to do that. He's like, no, I'm going to kill you. And then it's not until Bond threatens him with, well, I know such and such. And and then he's like – he realizes that he can't kill Bond at that point. Yeah. He doesn't keep him alive because it's like, well, I want you to hear my master plan so you can defeat me. I mean it's like it's not that um, – Although, funny enough, in Goldfinger it has probably one of the funniest moments, and even though it's terrific and it all works with like the Ken Adam, you know, production design and everything else, is he takes everybody into this giant, he takes all the gangsters into this giant room and shows them the giant model of how he's going to get Fort Knox, goes through his whole plan, and then just kills them all. It's like, so you built this <laughs> model that comes up out of the ground, and you have to go through this whole master plan of how you're going to steal all the gold in Fort Knox. And then I'm going to kill you. Like he went through this whole elaborate scheme and it's one of – not that it's a Bond film, but it's one of the funniest things in the first Austin Powers or one of the Austin Powers, you know, when he's when he's explaining to Dr. Evil um, – uh, What's is number one uh, or number two? Is um, I can't remember the actor. Terrific, Robert uh, Wagner. Robert, Robert Wagner. And he's like, and you know, I've diversified all our funds, and we have a company that builds miniature models of miniature models, and it, it's because it, it, it's that—that's <laughs> the absolute parody of Goldfinger at that moment. Um, but anyway, but yeah, no, but Goldfinger is, is a really good film because it does set up every. It really, every single Bond film after Goldfinger, it has those tropes and has all those gags, and, and it, it worked enough that almost even, even Casino Royale has a few of, nods to that, whether it's intentional or unintentional, but I think it works pretty well.
1: All right, where does that leave us on a star rating out of five stars? Uh, Matt.
2: Oh, I, a Casino Royale, a yeah, five. I'd say five because it, yeah. it it it's a movie. You know, I had thrown out that I wanted to talk about the film, and I hadn't seen it in a month or so. Because actually, I watch it every few months, and I watched it before the the, the show, and, and I was like, "Man, this is a really good film." It's just it's it, and and I'll tell you something. I'll tell you how good it is and how undated it is. I'd seen Spectre. I said, "Yeah, I saw it a month ago." Well, I saw Spectre. And I had to watch Casino Royale again after seeing Spectre. And you forget that's, that Casino Royale was like 10 years ago. It's a 10-year-old yeah. film. And because Daniel Craig, the reason I realized it was made in 2006, because there's a point where he looks at this time date on a, on, a, on, a, on a security camera and it says July 6, 2006. And I'm like, holy my god, that's 10 yeah. years ago. But what gets you is you look at Daniel Craig and look, he's a, he's a handsome fellow and, and he's not, he doesn't look old, but he looks so much younger in casino royale because i yeah, just he seen specter but yeah, he uh really does. you know but anyway but no I, i'd say five it's yeah five. it's a five star for me too handy and
1: five
0: star for me too
1: there we go well done well done casino
0: absolutely absolutely well it uh has been a lot of fun having you on the show uh matt talking about uh, casino royale um where should people find you if they want to uh, check out your stuff that you guys are up to
2: Um, usually we do I mean we're we're doing a lot of crazy things we have a website it's newdealstudios.com which kind of covers some of our visual effects work. Um, We're doing a lot of things right now in virtual reality. We're shooting in 360 degrees with a number of uh, companies right now. I'm currently working with Nokia. Uh, Nokia has a a really kind of neat camera called the Ozo camera. I just shot a piece uh, called mutiny, which is a sort of little pirate event adventure. Um, There is a music video I did for a terrific, a young indie rock band out of california called galvanized souls so if you look at galvanized souls i think dot com, or look up galvanized souls um on youtube 360 and the song is called new generation that was a 360 video that i directed and written um shot in 360 vr so we're doing a lot of those things and um you know it's it's we're and i'm um, you know, pitching to direct a couple live action pictures right now. So hopefully um, those things in 2016 go, go forth. But, um, but I have to say I'm very fortunate. You know, I've, I've had very, very uh, great uh, fortune and luck with a lot of the clients we've worked with over the years. And, you know, the the truth of the matter is the film business is very challenging. So working with, with great directors and great studios and, and good projects is really kind of all you can ask for in this business.
1: It is, uh, just looking at the, the credits of New Deal and the credits on your IMDb page, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's pretty ridiculous just how many great films you have touched, you and your team have touched, so... Uh, you know, it is uh, it, it is our great pleasure and honor to have you on this show and share a little bit of your uh, insights and and uh, and just share your love for a great movie. And so, uh, thank you so much for doing everything you do. We just uh, we sure appreciate it.
2: Well, I appreciate it. and thank you guys for the invitation. And um, and like I said, uh, it was it was a lot of fun. And it was fun to talk about the movie. It's fun to talk about a movie that not only that I liked, I didn't work on. So that way, <laughs> there you <laughs> go. No. But anyway, but thank you. I really appreciate. Um, being on the show and this is great thank
0: you so much and for everyone out there we hope you enjoyed the show if you like what you heard follow us on facebook twitter google plus instagram pinterest letterboxd and of course flick chart and uh, don't forget to head on over to itunes and leave us a rating and comment it really does help more people find us thank you for tuning in and until next time we'll be kicking back drinking our martinis it doesn't matter if they're shaking or stirring Oh, yeah. I forgot the exclamation point.
1: <laughs> Plus, by using those links to buy your next read, Apple and Amazon show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort.
0: the slash originals. It's a great way to support the show and find your next page turner. That's
1: right. Head over to the slash originals to pick out your next read and dig in today.